Uh, good morning. The um, reading this morning is from Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verses 8 to 12. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and as he, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. We're talking about essential actions in the Christian faith. Anytime a minister or a Christian leader or leader of any kind says, here's the essential things, uh, they're, they're doing at least some kind of editorial. Like, here's the fundamentals of our faith. And you can find out a lot about a person by what they consider the fundamentals and actually how long the list of fundamentals are. Um, and so I'm aware of that with essential actions of the Christian faith that, that I have uh, chosen these to some degree. I, I've, some of these I'm getting, or most of them, from a book by Barbara Brown Taylor called Altar in the, in the World. Um, that she was a Christian minister, but this is a pretty mass market book, um, and uh, I've adapted some of the the practices that I'm considering essential from from that book um, and to 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 more direct uh, church experience, or I would say Christian experience. So why would I talk about these things as essential? What are they essential towards? What's my hope for myself and for you? And without, obviously I don't want to sound trite in saying this, I I feel this in a heartfelt manner. Uh, They're essential to me because I I want something for you, for each of you individually and for us as a church, and then for our um, witness in, in the community. What I want is I want you and each of you to know God. That's my heart's desire. And I think that there's a lot, a lot of other important things, like how to be good, right? How to make good decisions or choices, um, matters of salt and light in this world. So I, I'm not saying that other things are unimportant, but there's times when I kind of go like this in my thoughts and shake things off that we think are important and say, no, what, what I really want for you is I want you to know God because I'm convinced that you won't be able to face the realities of your life and live in the fullness that God has for you if, if you don't know God, if you're just trying to be good or if you're trying to figure out you know, what to do or what choices to make. Or uh, One thinker that I love, um, he's just so provocative and his, his main call is justice. His name's Cornell West, uh, Dr. Cornell West. He's an African-American man in, in the United States. He's taught at Yale and Harvard and Princeton and... Now he's teaching at a theological seminary. He was recently giving a lecture in Winnipeg. I listened to it on CBC Radio. 
And this is a secular crowd, I mean, university crowd. And he talks about his faith constantly, his Christian faith. He's not certainly not on the right wing of the spectrum in terms of, in terms of how many of us were raised in Christian faith. But, but he talks about his Christian faith constantly when he's talking about justice. Uh, and, and he said in this lecture to all of these intelligent people and professors and the like, it's the Lloyd Axworthy, uh, they're inaugurating some chair at the University of Winnipeg. You might know the name Lloyd Axworthy because he used to be in, in the cabinet with the Liberal Party. But uh, Cornell West said, you know, in the end, uh, what we want to help people with in terms of philosophy or faith or anything that matters in the world is we have to help people learn how to die. And he's saying that not in a somber way. He's saying that in a life-giving way. What he means is, and he clarified it, we have to help one another to learn how to be free and alive. But he said our world is is inundated with the the never-ending never-ending pursuit, uh, never-ending joyless pursuit of pleasures. And nobody's telling us how to truly be alive. So I I want you to know God because I'm convinced in my faith that that's the way to to be truly alive in, in knowing God, even when you're facing death or loss. If you know God in Christ, you will live a life in the Spirit and these other things of what kind of person will you be and I mean, West points out in his faith, he said, we haven't even got anywhere near of plumbing the depths of the love of Jesus Christ because we still categorize people according to divisions. Uh, we're so far away from, from the depth of the love of Christ. He's saying this again to university over full lecture hall. So these practices, I say this today because we get to a tougher practice. Interesting on the day that Daniel begins to update us on, on some of the things he's just seen. This is a practice that's not always welcomed. The practice of of getting lost, of feeling lost in the world and in your life. If I didn't really care if you knew God, and this is often the case, I mean, I'm not trying to say other people don't care about you, but if you can think of someone who doesn't really care about whether you know God or not, they're trying to get a particular outcome from your life, you know, behavior modification, management type of stuff, or, or sign up for my program or whatever it is. Uh, two, there's two primary ways that you're treated when people aren't really caring about you. And one is overwhelming congratulations. So that's basically like, you are so wonderful. Your life is so great and all the choices you make are so wonderful. And aren't you just fantastic and all the congratulations that can happen in the world. Or the, the flip side of that is you are so terrible. And that's the religious sensibility to say, you're a terrible, you just make nothing but bad decisions, you're a horrible sinner, and you need to straighten this out. They're actually the same thing, just two sides of it, that focus on you and your behavior instead of calling us to anything transcendent. And they lead to the same place. They lead to kind of a, a, a zero game. Uh, Jesus said it to the Pharisees. He said, uh, you, you travel over land and sea, or land, yeah, you travel over land and sea, to, to win a single convert, like in other words, to get somebody else to believe, and then you turn them into twice the son of hell that you are. It's not like a great line for evangelism programs. He's basically saying, shut down your evangelism because you, you, you don't love people. So there's not a lot of point to it. So, so far we've said, wake up, pay attention as the first two practices, and today is get lost. It's just nicest for a preacher to say in the sermon a number of times, you need to get lost. Do with that what you will. Our reading is about Abram and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarah, as their names are changed to. 
And finding yourself in an unfamiliar place, Abram obeyed this call that he felt he had heard from God, and he went and he went in search of a city that he did not see, even for the whole of his life. A lot of the, the lives of Abram and Sarah, their lives uh, individually and their lives together, are defined by being lost and not really knowing where they're going. And they provide, never let scripture just provide a lesson. You, you need to, as I'm speaking about Abraham and Sarah, you need to kind of imagine them as actual people. That I mean, you don't know them because you didn't live there then, but they're actual people. Abraham and Sarah and what it meant that we can learn from their lives on what it means to be lost, but it's always more than just a lesson. It's a life. Finding yourself in an unfamiliar place, which may be geographical, may be emotional, it may be to do with your mental health or those you care for and love, it may be that the things that you readily control in your life, you don't control anymore. I think this is a pattern of aging, that we get to a place, you know, I'm not there yet, but it can happen anytime by injury or whatever else. Or it certainly happens with aging where the things that we used to control, we don't control anymore. I think ultimately this is a gift of God that we could let go and surrender, but our world will never speak of it as such. Uh, so often the things, these are the things that you want to stay away from and the things that you fear. And I remember as a young Christian hearing the pastor say things like, God wants you to bring bring you to the things that you fear. And I would think of the things that I would fear, death of a parent or something like that as a young person. And I would think, God can't want that for me. That's the thing that I dread the most. What kind of God would want that? And so I, as I share this with you, I say, you have a loving God. You don't need to be afraid. This isn't like a warning, like the thing that you fear most is going to happen. It's not that. It's a, it's a, it's a talk about the maturity that we need to live in this life. Biblical history is filled with examples of people being lost, and there are two main reasons for people being lost, then and now. Firstly, God may call you to an unfamiliar place. This is the case in terms of Abraham and Sarah. Leave your land, leave your people, and go to the place that I will show you. There's no GPS. There's no destination to put at the end. Just start going. And I'll show you where you're going. And they, he never really did in some ways geographically. Or they always seemed to be going to the place that God would show them at some point. He made promises to them about the actual land as well. But uh, it was, it was a, a, a setting out without a clear destination. They learned that God himself is the destination. So you could, you could find yourself lost because of the call of God, lost from what you think is familiar. The second reason that we find ourselves lost is a result of our own sin or ignorance. This is, and so then what happens for a pastor and what happens in your life is when you get lost, you, you try to determine, is it God's fault or is it my fault? And the problem is that both might be true. How do we square that? And so, you know, you want somebody to tell you that, well, it's not your fault. That's the congratulations side. Aren't you so wonderful? Um, or you, you kind of beat yourself up and say, I've done this. God can't be in this. The truth is that God is sovereign over both of those things, whether it's your fault or not. Many of the deserts in my life are of my own making, for sure. But God is present. He doesn't leave me. So you don't have to figure those things out. You don't have to beat yourself up. Is this, is this God's doing or mine? The, the question is, when you find yourself there, how are you going to listen for the presence of the living God? 
Uh, and we, because we're immature in this world and, we, and the world is filled with immaturity, just look at who we admire in the world often. Like kids in a sandbox admiring these, you know, the kid with the nicest toy. And because we live in a very immature world spiritually, um, we, we lose this. We try to figure out what's the reason instead of listening for the living God. So wandering in the desert for God's people, that's the story of being lost 40 years. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. The journey was supposed to be much shorter than that. But So in a way, you could say they were there because of their own doing. But God did call them into the desert, but not for these generations. But God was there with them the whole time. Or the exile in Babylon. This this would last for generations. This is into the prophetic books in Scripture. uh, How the people lived in the promised land, but then were cast out of the promised land. Because, why? Because they had sinned against God. But at the same time, God said to them, even though they go into exile, says, go to that place and settle down there and plant gardens and work for the good of the land in which you, you live. Even though it's the land in some ways of the enemy, I'll be with you there. By the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and wept. It's not just a Boney M song, it's a psalm. We wept. They made us play our instruments and pretend that we were happy. Our captors, when we remembered Zion, they forced us to sing these songs. If I want you to know God, the thought has to be so much higher than let me find the sin in your life and and help you feel bad about it and fix it. I mean, trust me, you need to, to repent. You need to understand that you're a sinner. You need, But fixing kind of the moral choices in your life doesn't, doesn't mean a, a bit that you will know God. You could just become a tyrant and really annoying and, and really good person in some ways, but not the kind of person that's nice to be around because you're just so confident of your own goodness. So if I want you to know God, it's not about you know, fixing these things in your life that we all have. It's about helping you to listen for the voice of the living God. And in that regard, I will say to you, I'm not warning you that something bad's about to happen. I face the same fears with that that you do. But I will say to you, with that as my interest, you will know God in ways, you will know God in the wilderness in ways that you can't know God in any other place. But you don't want it. And I don't want the wilderness. And I don't want the pain. And I don't want broken relationships in my life. And I don't want to see marriages fail. And I don't want to see children sick. And I don't want to see any of the bad things that I would never explain away by saying, well, God must have a reason. I don't want to see any of it. But I do know this, that we will all face suffering and loss. And I'm telling you, you will know God there in a way that you can't possibly know God in other places. Elijah, after a huge victory against these false prophets of Baal, you know, has this huge victory and then soon after finds himself alone and lost and depressed. He runs and discovers more about God in the desert of his despondence and pain and depression than he ever did or could in the victory. Listen for the still, small voice, Elijah. I'm in that gentle breeze. And Jesus, before his own ministry, you couldn't say this is of his sin, right? Jesus is by the Holy Spirit driven to the desert, seeking God 
his relationship with his father in the wilderness. On some level, it's my pastoral responsibility to help you. Not on some level. Why do I have that in my notes? It is just my pastoral responsibility to help you to seek God and to listen in your life. And I'm telling you, at these times uh, of wilderness, you will encounter God if you're open. Because we live our lives along well-worn and torn paths. Brown Taylor mentions that she was raised in in a farming environment and she could go out where the cows were and there would be trails where the cows were and they would walk on the same tiny little strip of land and she's like it was just literally worn right down and that's the way they would walk and then as she analyzed it even as a child she could see those paths avoided any kind of exertion whatsoever on the part of the cow they were the most they were the easiest path if you look across the street at Sutherland High School you'll realize when they built that school a few years ago they they instead of like building the sidewalks and then having the kids walk in the angles that are the closest ways they anticipated those angles and built them accordingly and so you'll see that they they just they work that way we live our lives along well-worn paths our routes to work and the patterns of our life but if you stray from the path One of the blessings of straying from the path is that you can no longer stay unconscious. Have you had that feeling? Where you get home, you drive from somewhere to your house, and you don't remember driving it. But then you go a different route, or you get lost, or you realize just in your own community, you walk down some side street off of Grand Boulevard, I live in the Grand Boulevard area, and I think, I've never walked on this street before. You can no longer stay unconscious. You notice things. Abram and Sarah, what would become of them as they listened to the voice of God and began to take up lives of wanderers in the way of this world? They would have a child, and in, in, in God's promises would be fulfilled. But uh, it was much more than just this life that you would see. Because if you just looked at Abram and Sarah and their lives, you, you looked at their lives according to the way that we analyze things, you'd basically say, well, they kind of failed, really. They've, they've, they've got in all kinds of difficulty and trouble. They had weird stuff I'll tell you a little bit about in a few minutes. In the end, they had one, more than one kid, but actually not really Sarah's and really messed up situation. But if you look at the promises of God, their descendants would ultimately outnumber the stars in the sky. And if you look at the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, we would say, Jewish people would certainly say that they're, they're Abraham's descendants, but as Christians, we would say the same thing. Even here. Because they listened to God's voice and they were willing to be lost. They had a willingness to be lost. They left their familiar lives not as discontents. I don't think. Maybe they were. I don't know. But their lives were good. They were okay. So I think they left probably not as discontents but as following the voice of God. And from there it was not off to some ideal life. I mean, they were not spiritual giants. They really weren't. They've become that in our memory. But if you look at their lives, I mean, they made the kind of mistakes that you would make, and maybe even worse. They made the kind of mistakes that you would say, well, those people just can't. I mean, they're a mess. Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife on multiple occasions as they find themselves in in a foreign land because in those kinds of places at that kind of time, they would take the woman if she was beautiful and maybe kill kill the guy or at least be done with him. And so he lies, that's not my wife, that's my sister. It's all so weird and twisted and... So then, you know, because then they would feel like they could, they could kind of take her then, like they could be with her. 
So it's, 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 this is, these are really strange and difficult things that happen. Troubling. And Abraham has, Abraham has dreams that are tormenting. Even as God is making promises to him, he sees future pain and suffering, not only in his life, but he, is, he, he has a revelation of future pain and suffering in the world for his people and his descendants that is utterly bleak and utter darkness. It's basically that God's telling him of the, of the slavery that's coming in Egypt, though he can't really fathom that because you can't fathom the future either. But Abram can feel the pain and the darkness. It's overwhelming to him. Sarah is tormented as well in a way. I mean, maybe, maybe Abraham kept saying, are you pregnant yet? Are you pregnant yet? Are you pregnant yet? As he heard God's promise. And eventually she gets so sick of it, or maybe it's in her own interior life as well, that she says, look, I'm sick of this. Sleep with our servant. Have sex with our servant so that at least there's a kid and it's kind of ours. This, I mean, these aren't like spiritual. The people that you would necessarily put up on a pedestal in our, in our improper kind of thinking. All kinds of difficulty from there, obviously, in that kind of familial situation. And eventually they have their own child. But I want to free you from the idea that getting lost is romantic. This is not you in some, you know, vacation spot veering off of your regular route or even somewhere in the lower mainland, veering off of your regular route and finding the loveliest little deli and coffee shop. And it's so nice when we get lost because we find nice things. Hey, there's moments of that. But this getting lost is the real deal and it's really painful and difficult at times. There are physical effects. There are mental effects to getting lost. What were you thinking about before all of a sudden uh, you had the, bre- the, the breakdown, whether it's the breakdown of your car or your mind? What were you thinking about before then? And as soon as the change comes, all of a sudden you're not thinking about that anymore. The mental effects and the physical effects, and now you're focused just on now. So I've moved you, I think, to where I want you to be to, to make the teaching points that I have for this morning. And they are this, three things. Three things about getting lost. The first of the three things is to talk about a state in which you find yourself when you're lost. And I'm going to mention that this state is essential for love and spiritual growth. It's essential. But it's the thing you also hate the most, and it generates some of the fear in your life. The two numbers two and three, those second and third things, are both attributes of God that we can learn about and that we can more readily see when we're in the state that I'll mention. So number one is that which we feel when we're lost, and numbers two and three is the power by the presence of the Holy Spirit that can come rushing in when we are lost. So firstly, the state in which we find ourselves. And there's the word, and you already hate it. Vulnerability. That's where you are when you're lost. You are vulnerable. All of the most important things in life you learn when you're vulnerable. One way to look at it is you're either open or you're closed. Closed is easier because you can avoid pain, but openness means you can be hurt, particularly by those you love. So Dave and Amy have a baby. And she's going to bring them the most joy in their lives and the most pain and fear. They could not have a baby. Or they could close themselves off to that vulnerability. And some people do this out of their own pain. 
It, it, you don't have to have a child for this. I'm always mindful when we talk about these things of people who can't have children or haven't had children and wanted to. It's not to idealize this state. It's any human relationship this, this vulnerability comes. Any relationship of love brings a terrible, terrible possibility of loss. Why is that? I mean, the silly way of thinking it is, you hear some people say this at times, it's like I've taken my heart out of my chest and you carry it around with you now. It's true, right? James went to see Gary Ray on, on Friday, and I think I'm okay in mentioning this. And Gary is only in his late 40s, young family, and, and barring a miracle, and by the way, miracle means miracle, so it means it's, it's the less of the likely things. Um, barring a miracle and healing, which we pray can happen, we know can happen and pray will. But barring that, Gary is facing death not too long from now. And so he says to James, is, is there on the back deck there in Kelowna, he says, you know, he's got a strong faith, and he says, we're all going to die. You've heard these kinds of things before. We're all going to die, and, uh, and I don't know why for me it seems to be now, and I'm, I'm ready, but I don't even want to think about the loss for Heidi and the kids. That's the vulnerability. Any relationship you have. The opposite of this vulnerability is to be impermeable. But while that might feel safer, I mean this, no growth can occur when you're impermeable. Getting lost and being lost means that you are vulnerable. Abram and Sarah are vulnerable as they follow the voice of God and they face tremendous loss and challenge. And all of our greatest stories since... Even like Lord of the Rings or whatever you're watching, and what the, they will show you this vulnerability. These and that's J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, as a Christian and as a contemporary and friend of, of um, C.S. Lewis and, and others, uh, skillfully draws these little hobbits in a land. How could they make any change? They're always vulnerable to death at every turn. He draws that so very, very skillfully. Our Christian history has a long tradition of these things. Uh, I'm going to save that for a sec. John Chrysostom, and it's not his actual name, and he was reluctantly made Bishop of Constantinople in the 300s. He died in 407. And back then they would basically say, you should be Bishop. And then the guy would try to run away and they would literally go and get him and say, nope, you're Bishop, and put the robes on and ha, gotcha. Uh, Because he was eloquent. Uh, Chrysostom means golden mouth. He was eloquent and and strong, and he spoke in a time where there was a lot of difficulty in the world. Uh, And kind of a contemporary of his, Gregory of Nyssa, who died in 394, was a Cappadocian father and venerated as a saint by Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Lutheran Church, Anglican Church, others. If brethren had saints, uh, he would be one, maybe. Together, they're thinking, they came up with these terms that I hate, in my mind, sounds like a Harry Potter like declaration or chant or something, because um, it's Latin. But these are them, uh, the mysterium tremendum and fascinans, uh, which means simply this, that when you're at a place of being lost and you face what, what can rush in, what happens, these are things two and three, 
That which causes one to shudder also stirs somehow delight. What they're talking about in these two, in thing two and three together, are God's holiness and God's compassionate intimacy. Those are the things you can see in the wilderness that you so often you can't see in other places. God's holiness is like something terrifying. Where it might be you, I, I remember swimming in, a, in my parents' pool in the backyard when I was a teenager, uh, not at this faith for very long, but I was just like suspended in the water and I felt terrified. For some reason at that moment, I felt the holiness of God and the tininess of me. That I could cease to exist and it wouldn't make a whip of difference in the world. Because God is so holy and so other than me. God's holiness can be terrifying, but the third thing comes as well, or the second part of this holiness, is that in that moment, if you know God, you know that you are cared for and you are loved. My question to you then would be this, because you want nice, secure lives. You want things to be ordered. You don't want to face trouble and difficulty. My question for you would be this. Where then is the room for the holy in your life? We're about control and pleasure and comfort and security and certainty. But when you're lost, not always, but if you listen when you're lost, you will see and discover that God is present in your actual life if you lose a job, suffer a great loss, face some pain. It doesn't actually have to be big, the loss. You can just have it in your mind or your thoughts. You have a broken relationship in your life. You go through a divorce or a separation. You can in these times encounter God in such a way that that which causes you to shudder stirs delight. I don't mean childish delight. I mean like a liveliness and a sense that you're alive even though things are terribly threatening. I can describe it in an innocuous way. Imagine yourself at the top of a rocky cliff. We'll make the cliff red and the abyss large. There's a sense as you stand on the edge of this of a bottomless chasm which brings with it a sense of dread and vertigo. And you reach for something to hold on to. The effects are physical and mental. That's the effects of being lost. And we would not choose it. I told you this story before, and it's because I haven't been to places of real devastation. I mean, we've worked in Mexico in third world conditions, and but not, I haven't seen anything close to what Daniel saw in this last six weeks. But we each have in our own lives times where we can where we can relate to some of this. I've told you this before, but for me, one, one of these times was when I got in a car accident a number of years ago. I was a youth pastor here at Sutherland, and it was a Saturday night, a busy day, and it was the day before Jen and I, our wedding anniversary, which is February 8th. So it was February 7th. And it's convenient that our anniversary is in February because there's all kinds of heart things in stores. And so I don't usually get this kind of kitschy, but I bought a giant helium heart balloon for Jen. I think Aiden was around at this point, but Matt wasn't born yet. I think. Maybe they were born. Anyway. Uh, I had been to a course at Regent College all day on that Saturday, and then I came back to the North Shore, maybe I met him downtown, and went to the hockey game with Terry Carabetta, Canucks game. I was so tired, I remember driving back. I dropped Terry at home after the game. It had been a long day. And the whole back seat of my Honda Civic was filled up with this giant balloon had been for the whole day. So tired. Dropped Terry off. He lived like two blocks from here on 17th Street. I lived down at 3rd in St. Andrews, and I went to drive that tiny little route home, and it was a well-worn path. I drive it all the time. 
But because I was tired, I, I got the streets wrong in my tiredness. And I just blew right by a stop sign. And I smashed into somebody. I could have killed somebody. And so the whole thing, and then you just get lost, the whole thing, if you ever did it, it just has a momentum of its own. And I can't even really, and all of a sudden I'm sitting on the curb, and the police are there, I mean, everything's right there, fire, ambulance, hospital, everything. I thought like, I, I felt like I was okay physically, I was terribly worried about the people that I'd hit. I just rode right through this thing, smashed right into it. And people are on their balconies. They're starting to look out at the thing. It's pretty late at night, 11.30 or something like that. No cell phones back then. Sirens, police and fire and ambulance and these people on their little decks. The police with me now. What happened? Are you okay? I guess they, they used their training to ask me the right questions. And I was shaking. And I just kept saying, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. It was totally my fault. Are they Okay. I, I determined that they must be okay because the police just told me that one of them had been drinking and they thought he was driving. And I said, I can't tell you who was driving. I, I'm in too much of a fog. I can't remember it. Yes, they're fine, they said. Meanwhile, Jen, just a few blocks away, was wondering why I was so late. She'd heard the sirens and called the Carabettas. And Sue had said, and Terry had said, no, he left quite some time ago. It's about a two-minute drive. She can't leave the apartment and go, look, because she's got the kids and we've got one car, so she's waited. And in the midst of it, this will tell you the time frame, there was a Chantal Kravaziak song, is that how you say it, in my head, because I'd been listening to the album, I guess. And I don't know why this song came into my head, but the song is called Surrounded. And I knew it was about the love of God. And it just says, it's all around me, all around me. You surround me like a circle. Don't lose sight of me now. I'm surrounded. I felt utterly cared for. And I'm not attaching that to the outcome. I felt before I knew that things were okay, that I was surrounded by the love of God. I knew somehow, this is the second part of it, God's intimate compassion for me, even in what at the time could have been a time for me of great, wil- of great wilderness. God is holy. But His holiness is not simply good or perfect. His holiness is always beyond our comprehension, like looking into the Grand Canyon and we're a small part of a vast landscape. But then if you listen, particularly in the love of Jesus Christ, you will hear, you are not alone. I'm with you. Jesus will say to us, I want you to come to Jesus. You know that, right? Jesus will say to us, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. On the cross, facing the deepest of all darkness, we're told somehow in creeds or in that Jesus descended into hell. I don't know theologically what that means, but I know that there is no place where his love doesn't reach. Even here, God? How could you be here in this devastation? Where I'm lost. Is it your voice that called me here? Is it my own failing or my own sin or somebody else's? But then I realize that I am home anywhere if you are where I am. Even here, you're with me. If I settle on the far side of the sea, the 139th Psalm says, even there your right hand will hold me fast because the darkness will not be dark to you. The 97th Psalm 
Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. That's the holiness of God. The 18th Psalm, my God turns darkness into light. You have become a lamp for me for my feet. The 42nd Psalm, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. The vast, your waves and breakers have swept over me. And Jonah, as he's hurled into the sea and finds himself in the belly of the whale, he says, you hurled me into the depths. But even there, he writes a psalm. If you read the book of Jonah, there's a psalm right in in it. From the belly of the whale, how could you be even here? How could you be even in this, sovereign over this, my place of greatest loss? And Jesus on the cross cries out. And this is the way that you know he is with you everywhere. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we do if there are no wild places left in the world? You could be in Vancouver or Thailand or Mexico and there's a Starbucks and a Gap and maybe a Lululemon now. It's the same place. We have to seek these places of wilderness. So what can we do? And again, application is always smaller. Nobody, no preacher can make application as big as truth and as big as the power of the Holy Spirit. It always diminishes the power of the, of the message. But you want a couple things to, to do, so I'll give them to you. Just don't let them distract you from the heart of what we're talking about. So first, in getting lost, you need to start somewhere. You need to develop the spiritual muscles of getting lost. So walk down a street that you've never walked down before. Just do simple things like that. And ask God in those moments, show me what you really want me to see because I've just found a nice little deli and coffee shop, but I have a feeling that you want to bring me to places that I would avoid. So train those spiritual muscles. Take different routes. And secondly, simply ask God to show you His holiness and compassion. And I would say in this, Welcome vulnerability. This is possible in the spiritual life. You can say thank you for the things that you can't control. You can say thank you that you don't know how the end will work out when you're diagnosed. You can say thank you that you don't know that this will turn out okay. Because you will say, in this I am vulnerable, and in this I can know what it means to be truly alive. Come to Jesus. Here is where the poem Footprints breaks down. You know that poem? You can't say it in church because it's just so trite now. I was walking on the beach and there were two sets of footprints and one were like really old sandals and mine were my feet or whatever. And then there's one pair of, of one set of footprints and, and I thought, dear Jesus, why did you leave me at this point? And he's, you know, and, and then, oh, you didn't leave me, you were, you were carrying me. It's a beautiful, wonderful poem. The only problem with it, actually there's a lot of problems with it, but I don't want to hurt it for you. My biggest problem in the context of what we're talking this morning with that poem is this. It's a lovely beach. That's not how this works, you guys. This is in the middle of a tornado when you're caught up in that swirl and you know one thing, you're about to die. Somehow, as you face the moment of greatest loss, you realize, he's with me here. Now, you want me to tell you that you don't die. can't tell you that. I can tell you that he's with you, even there. His gentle call. And I'm freaking out. God, you've got to fix this in my life. And he's not freaking out. His strong 
compassionate intimacy when I see it is holding me fast. Thanks be to God. So we take this, the body of Jesus Christ, broken for you to the depths of all pain, darkness, sin, broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins, the cup, the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins that you can know the life that's in Him. So you receive this. We always say at this table, you're welcome to receive if you know Jesus or if you would like to. This is a table not of exclusion, but of inclusion. Jesus served Judas this Last Supper before the betrayal. If you know Jesus or you want to, you're welcome to receive. Let's pray. And then we'll share the communion. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us in this. And help us to be the kind of people in a terrified world. I mean, our world is just swimming in fear and pretense. And we're showing each other how nice our things are. And so often we're just whistling past the graveyard. Teach us how to live in teaching us how to let go. How to even deny ourselves. And to accept our mortality because our life isn't in these day-to-day things. The life contained in those day-to-day things is beyond even the grave. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes and bless this communion we share together. Our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.